Well, these are unique times for us. They're unique for us, but they are not unique for, for humanity. Disease and plague have occurred throughout all history, throughout every century. And in many ways, we are living in unprecedented times, with unprecedented events. But actually, I think more accurately, what is occurring for us is that we are being brought closer, far closer than many of us have ever experienced, to what men and women have experienced throughout all of history, throughout the whole span of time. There's a connection with the past that we share as we go through this global crisis. And Christian people have lived in these times. Christian people have lived in times of plague and disease before. And in fact, what we read from the pages of history is that Christian people have lived in a very distinct and different way through these times of crisis. The early church faced similar situations of plague and disease, and many in their time were frightened. Many in their world were petrified at the prospect of death and the prospect of catching a disease. One early historian in the church, Dionysus, uh, he noted that in the early church, Christians thrived during these times. In fact, he says that Christians saw epidemics, disease and plague as merely schooling and testing. At a time when many other faiths crumbled, at these times, Christians rose up. Christians were different. Christianity indeed thrived. The the uh, sociologist and historian Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And the book really asks the question, what changed these 11 ragtag disciples who had fled and betrayed Jesus, what changed them such that what they created and what they were a part of had this massive effect on the Roman Empire that within 300 years... It was the most significant force throughout the whole empire. What would do, what would create a phenomena like this? Well, the answer to that question is what we see today and indeed what we have had read today. Because in our reading from Matthew's Gospel, we see that there is another emperor, that there is another force, that there is Jesus who is king, and there is Jesus who is king through his death. We're going to see this morning that Jesus is king and that he reigns and that he rules and that through his death, through his crucifixion, he saves. The idea of kingship is stressed in Matthew's gospel. And it's really stressed in this whole section in the lead-up to Jesus' crucifixion. If you cast your eye back there 
in verse 29, just before our reading, you'll see that the soldiers twist this crown for Jesus. And there in our first reading, in verse 37, we read, Above Jesus' head they place the ridden charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. It's clear in Matthew's mind what is occurring here. What is occurring in Jesus' death and crucifixion is indeed his coronation. Here is Jesus' high point as king. But it's not a fancy or dignified coronation. Now Matthew paints this dark and gruesome scene for us. Pilate has had Jesus already whipped, leather strands tipped with shards of bone, the whipping was enough to kill you. And then as Jesus is flogged, he is mocked and beaten by the soldiers. They beat him to an unrecognisable pulp, marred beyond human semblance. And adding to the physical horror, they psychologically torment Jesus. In mock homage, they praise him as this king. And finally, they spit on him, draining him with his blood of every shred of dignity. This seems like a brutal sport for these hardened men. And there in verse 22, as we pick up in our reading, Jesus is on the move. Verse 32, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. Matthew here captures for I think future verification, the historic detail of who carried the cross and where he's from. Simon of Cyrene, a small town in northern Africa, he's co-opted to carry the cross. Why? Well, after Jesus' beating, he is too weak. And Jesus, with Simon, is led to this place of the skull, this first century rubbish dump. And there, as he approaches this place called Golgotha, feigned sympathy is given to him in the offer of this undrinkable drink. And there in verse 35, with what seems like understated brevity, we read that they crucified Jesus. I wonder if we can imagine this occurring. We might conceive that some people could do this. But here we have people acting toward another person with such brutality. It's more animalistic than it is human. This would have been horrific for any person to endure. But this is not any person enduring it. This is Jesus. This is Jesus who Matthew records as the one giving the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies. This is Jesus, the one who Matthew records, who healed the sick, cleansed the leper, fed the hungry. This is Jesus with power such that he could walk on water. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who descended from heaven and took on full humanity. And I think in Matthew's mind... As this dark scene descends to the moment of Jesus' 
crucifixion, we're meant at this stage to kind of understand what's going on because Matthew throughout his whole gospel has been leading us to this moment and one of the key ways that Matthew does that is the way in which he records that Jesus fulfills key sections of the Old Testament. Woven through this whole section as Jesus is led up to the cross are unspoken fulfilments of the Old Testament. Matthew doesn't actually alert us to them, but I think he wants us to see them. He doesn't point them out because I think he anticipates that over time we might recognise them. In the Old Testament, God promised a king. He promised a rescuer for his people. He promised a rescuer who would protect his people from evil and from enemies. And this king would be anointed by God himself and he would rule and he would be an everlasting ruler and such, the Old Testament anticipates, is the radiance of his purity that wicked men and women would despise and reject him, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We see this in the Psalms, and in Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 in particular. In Psalm 22, we read that Jesus, in, uh, that, uh, sorry, in Psalm 22, verse 18, that they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. In Psalm 69, we read in verse 21 that they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. They're just two snippets just from the Psalms of how they prefigure with remarkable precision the suffering that Jesus would endure on the cross long before the form of crucifixion had ever been invented. In both these Psalms that speak of this king suffering and dying, both of these Psalms in Psalm 22 and in Psalm 69, if you want to look it up later, both these Psalms conclude with this, with a sense of vindication for this one who suffers, a just king. And at the end of Psalm 22, all the ends of the earth will remember the Lord through his suffering and they will bow down before him. In these Psalms, both Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, we have a suffering king. But we have more than just a suffering king. We have a king who is enthroned because of his suffering, through his suffering. In fact, we read in both these Psalms that God exalts this king, God lifts this king up because he has suffered in this way. These Psalms both anticipate that every knee will bow to this king and all will serve this king on account of his obedience. And in his suffering, Jesus is seen truly as king. The name that is given above every king and indeed above every name 
at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, the New Testament records. Here, in this moment of suffering, in this moment of misery, in this moment of shame and grief and loss, here Jesus is enthroned as king of our world. Through his whole gospel, Matthew has helped those who read it to see that Jesus is king. He was king at his birth with the Magi. He was king at his baptism with John the Baptist. He was king in his victory over the temptation of Satan. He was king as he gave his teaching on the Servant on the Mount. He was king as he worked miracles throughout the gospel account. But now at the point of death, now with Roman rulers, religious people and the masses baying for his blood here, he is brought into his kingship. Matthew is stressing the royal reign of the Lord Jesus, but the reign of the Lord Jesus as one who is despised. At the very point where it appears that Jesus is most lacking, then he has fulfilled his kingship. They mocked Jesus, but we see that the Old Testament shows us that God said they would. They gave him spoiled wine, but God said they would. They pierced his hands and his feet because God said they would, and they divided his clothing because God said they would. See, Matthew's point is at this moment of loss, of this moment of death, of this moment of seeming defeat here, is the victory of God's king. But what kind of victory is it? How would you recognise him as king? Well, that's what the next section is all about there in verses 38 to 44. Because here in this moment where God sees Jesus as king, those around him don't. Those who pass by are disgusted by him. The elders deride him. They mock him for his pretense of being king, for his unfulfilled promises in verse 40. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. This section is thick with irony because Jesus has said that he would destroy the cross and raise it in three days. It's thick with irony because the temple was this place where God's presence was. It was a place of pardon. It was a place of praise. You went to the temple. There you met with God. There you prayed. You went to the temple and there you were forgiven. There a sacrifice was made. And here they are mocking Jesus because he was talking about the temple that he would build. And yet, those who mock Jesus for his shame, for his defeat, are witnessing the very temple that he is building. Because there in the death of Jesus is the presence of God. There in the death of Jesus is the forgiveness of God. There 
in the death of Jesus is the new temple of his body. You see, the crucifixion, Jesus' death, would carry the sin of the whole world. And by his resurrection, he would bring the blessings that the Old Testament had spoken about. And he would bring them to his people. His people would not come to him, but he would come to his people directly, without the need of a temple or a priest. See, the death of Jesus is God coming to us to deal with the reality of our sin, to bear upon himself the penalty for our sin. And so if we are to meet God, we are to meet God in the temple of Jesus' body. We are to meet God through Jesus. If we are to be forgiven, it is through the death of the Lord Jesus and if we are to truly praise God, it can only because, be because of the death of the Lord Jesus. They mocked him. They mocked him because he couldn't save himself. He would rescue and help others, but now he couldn't save himself. But we know the irony is, were he to save himself, he would not have rescued any others. Were he to have left that cross... He would have left any claim to be God's sovereign king. Rather, he stays there. He hangs there. And he endures our judgment. He endures our judgment and he endures the judgment of the very ones who would mock him for being there. In the death of Jesus, we see his sacrifice. We see his sacrifice for us, but we see his model to us of how we ought to live. See, human nature at its heart wants to save itself. I don't know if you've seen that in the last three or four weeks. There have been many positive things that have come out of this corona crisis and yet we have seen how thinly veiled the propensity is of humans to serve themselves and grab for themselves. Jesus offers us a different way to live. He offers us a different way to love. See, Jesus saved us. And when, as Christian people, we come to trust in him, we have a model of how we are to live and we have a power for how we are to live. And we have assurance in the death of Jesus. We have assurance that God loves us. His willingness to endure such horror and shame was one that he endured for us. See, the death of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus was that powerhouse that drove the early church, that gave courage to so many. It gave hope and it gave freedom. And this morning, as we consider the death of the Lord Jesus, we cannot consider it in a casual manner. We must take seriously Jesus' death, the horror of the reality of what he endured. And as serious as we take that, we must take the comfort that we have, 
the assurance that we have that anything that might stop us and prevent us, any moment or act of sin that would bar us from God has been dealt with fully in the blood and the death of the Lord Jesus. There are many today who are tired, weary and lonely. And yet Jesus, as we read in this account, was tired, weary, abandoned by all and lonely. And yet he was undeserving. He was lonely so that we might be brought in. He was weary so that we might have rest. And he was tired so that we might be strengthened. Let us pray that the death of the Lord Jesus might be a reality that is true, might be something that we trust in and that we find great strength and hope in this day. Amen. We're going to celebrate the death of the Lord Jesus in this song that we sing together called Jerusalem. Jerusalem.